Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. Good morning, church family. It's great to see you this morning. And uh, those who are watching by live stream, thank you for joining us this morning. And what a tremendous crowd we have here uh, with folks who are visiting with us and our regular uh, tenders as well as our members. And I'm delighted that you are here. We're going to begin with uh, my part of the service, uh, just a little bit different this morning. And that is that we've just concluded a month of October that was all about missions emphasis. And for five Sundays, we talked about Uh, missions, the necessity of us participating in missions, and we gave everyone a faith promise card last Sunday, and uh, and those were turned in. Thank you so much. In just a moment, we'll have the ushers uh, make a pass through the auditorium again. If you did not receive your faith promise card, today's the day that we need you to turn those in so that we can announce our new total. May I just tell you, we are trending toward the largest total that our church has ever given to missions. Isn't that exciting? That is, I am just thrilled. And I believe that after we get our final totals in today, that we will actually have the highest total we've ever given in one year to missions. And so we're going, we're going to do that. But I want to give you a thank you this morning. And men, if you'll uh, come, we're going to uh, uh, talk about uh, a packet of coffee. And we're going to give those. And if I could have my staff men go back and help the ushers, we're going to, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, I would like to give every, every family unit here a package of coffee that talks about core missions. Now, we support core missions. So if I could at this time just have one member of every family please stand, we're going to have a, a, a gift given to you, and then we're going to um, talk about this packet of coffee. So whether you're a single or you have five in your family, one person from your family stand, we want to give this to you, and then you can be seated after you receive that. Thank you, men, for helping and doing a great job this morning. Um, And then we'll talk about this in just a moment. And if you're watching by live stream and you would like a cup, uh, uh, you would like one of these packages of coffee uh, right there in live stream, you have our address. You can get a hold of us and we will take care of that. Men, don't forget the balcony as soon as uh, uh, you get through there on the main floor. Core missions, we've supported them for many years, and I want to make sure uh, that as we give this to you as a thank you, that you understand how your missions dollars are used. And so with that, take a, take a look at your, uh, this package of coffee, and there's different, so you can trade with someone if you like medium, light, or dark roast, you can trade. Uh, I don't even know what all that means. Um, uh, I haven't drank coffee Ever so, uh, I uh, when I get old enough, I'll start drinking coffee. So, um, so core mission several years ago got together and thought this would be a great way to get the message out about what we do, and core missions. They're, they're, what they are all about is supporting national pastors uh, and training and supporting national pastors. So, uh, for example, in the Philippines, we want uh, to train Filipino men that can uh, learn about pastoring, how to be a pastor, and then do that. Um, in the country of Uganda, where we can have Ugandan men learn how to be a pastor and, uh, and pastor. And so this gives us an opportunity every time we see this packet of coffee to pray for all of the national pastors that Core Mission supports. There are hundreds, isn't that amazing? Hundreds of national men who are not, uh, uh, who are not Americans, who are not white uh, Americans that are going out from churches. These are, these are people that are Asian and they are, they, they are uh, black from Africa and they are European men who uh, we're able to come alongside and support. And this is an example of what happens to your missions dollars. Uh, 100% of that money is then sent to core missions who then uh, sends that money to all of these national pastors. And what happens is every month, 
these national pastors, they send in a report, and that report shows um, uh, uh, things that have happened in their ministry over this past month. It's a great accountability system so that we know that our missions dollars are being used for the purposes uh, that, um, that are intended, and that is the number one purpose is to reach men and women boys and girls with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's the most important thing. And so that's what our mission dollars are used for. Now, uh, uh, ushers, if you'll help me with the Faith Promise mission cards, uh, just if you did not receive one of these last week, you were out of town, and uh, we did have several families out of town, uh, just raise your hand. Uh, one of these men will put the, uh, these Faith Promise cards in your hand. And then if you wouldn't mind, at the end of the service, if you'll make sure that you return this into one of the offering boxes, that would be greatly appreciated. And that way, we can make sure that all of the faith promise commitment cards are returned. And this is simply, it's a promise uh, between you and the Lord of what you'll give to missions over this next year. And we'll be able to impact the world with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So please uh, take one of those cards and complete that. Turn it in at the end of the service. And if you have any questions, I'd love to help you after the service this morning. Now take your Bibles. Thank you so much, men, for your help. Go to the book of 1 John chapter number 3. Now don't get too comfortable. We're all going to stand here in just a moment. 1 John chapter number 3. We're continuing our series of messages, and I see some folks who are visiting with us. Again, thank you. I do trust that you'll stop by guest services at the end of the service and, um, and uh, allow us to be able to give you a gift as our way of saying thank you for being here this morning. But we're preaching what we call expository preaching, and that is every Sunday we're preaching on a book of the Bible, and we go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, where necessary to explain what the Bible says. And uh, that way we don't chase um, rabbit trails and tangents. Uh, we preach uh, what the Bible tells us. And so a handout's prepared every week and you have that. I encourage you to take notes. If you do not have a regular devotion time, maybe use these notes as a refresher during the course of the week, especially since we're going verse by verse. In just a moment, we'll stand and we're going to read uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. But before we do that, uh, let's, by way of introduction, look at our topic today. I've entitled this morning's message, The Job Description of the Sinner. What is that? One word, sin. Uh, in Moody Magazine, Carl Amardine, he recounted his experience of watching a, um, one of those lions in a zoo. And uh, he says, I stood there, the attendant uh, entered into the cage through the door, uh, opposite door, opposite side, and he said nothing, uh, uh, really to the lion, he had nothing in his hands but a broom. And he began to clean out the cage where uh, the lion was, was resting. And as uh, the worker had nothing to ward off an attack by the, by the beast, um, in fact, he even got really close to the lion in the corner of the cage. And, and uh, as he was watching, he even watched the, uh, the attendant there poke the lion with the end of his, his broom. And uh, the lion hissed at him, and uh, he and just laid down there just like nonchalant, non-interested. Can't imagine doing that myself. And the guy said, he asked the attendant, you certainly are a brave man. Uh, how, how come you're not afraid? And he said, no, I ain't brave. Uh, well, then that, that lion must be tame. No, he ain't tame, the attendant said. Um, well, if you ain't brave and he ain't tame, uh, then I can't understand why he doesn't attack you. And the attendant, he chuckled there, and he, he looked at the guy asking the question with an air of confidence. He said, Mister, he's old, and he ain't got no teeth. <laughs> I, I read that, and I had the same reaction. I smiled at that. Uh, I can, I can see, see him saying that. But you know, I think we look at the devil the same way. He ain't got no teeth. He's, he's old. I mean, he goes way back thousands of years. But I want to remind you this morning of what the Bible says. The Bible says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he walketh about as a roaring lion. Even though you may think he's old, the Bible says he looks to seek whom he may devour. He hasn't lost his teeth. He's not tired. He may be old, but he's still watching to destroy 
See who he can destroy as Christians. Some people even questioned the existence of the enemy. D.L. Moody, he said that he knew Satan was real for two reasons. First of all, the Bible said he was real. And secondly, he's done business with him. I think there's many of us that we could echo that. We know the Bible says the devil is real. He's called an angel of light, Lucifer, the evil one, the devil. He has different names, but he is real. And I want to remind you this morning that all around us, the evidence, the presence of Satan can be realized. How else can we explain the horrible and grotesque acts beyond the manifest presence of some type of incarnate evil? Folks, this world, before our very eyes, we've said it a hundred times in the past 13 years, and we could say it a hundred more times. It seems as if every week our world gets worse. And we like to blame it on Democrats or Republicans, or we like to blame it on libertarians or a socialist economy, or we like to find ways to blame. I just tell you, the devil's real. He's destroying the world, not just the United States. And he's preparing and ushering the way for Jesus Christ to come back and get all of us. So what we see is biblical. The world is evil. Several years ago, an evangelist said this, Our world is on fire, and man without God cannot control the flames. The fires of greed, hate, and lust are sweeping uncontrollably around our globe. We live in the midst of a crisis, danger, fear, and death. And I say, I agree with that statement. Nowhere is that made plainer that in a schoolyard in Michigan a couple years ago when an elementary student came to school with a gun and shot a first grader. Uh, sin is not just a problem of humanity. Sin is also a personal problem. All of us sin. A reporter once asked uh, G.K. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? And he simply replied, I am. How true. Um, unbelievers are in a bondage to sin, and they can't help but sin. It is their only nature. May I just remind you that a person who is born, they are born with a sin nature. It's the only nature they have until they meet Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, the job description of a sinner is very simply to sin. However, believers are no longer under bondage. May I just tell you this morning, we do not have to sin We choose to sin. Think about that. The Holy Spirit of God lives within us. And you do not have to sin. You choose to sin. And with that in mind, let's stand together and let's read our passage of Scripture. We're going to begin in verse number 4, which means you'll begin reading in just a moment. And I'll read the odd verses in just a moment. Now, as you're standing and getting set... I'd like for you to follow Pastor Jonathan as he reads, beginning in verse number 4. But I want you to understand what we're about to read. Verses 4 through 9 is oft discussed among preachers, among people who are in discipleship. It, is an, it can be a confusing passage of Scripture. But this morning, with God's help and lots of study on this passage of Scripture, I wish to clearly explain expositionally within the context that it is written what this passage of Scripture means. And it should impact every one of us when we talk about this little word, sin. Would you please follow Pastor Jonathan as he begins in verse number 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And John, he tells us who he's talking to. Is he talking to the unsaved? No. He's talking to Christians. And he says this, little children, let no man deceive you. He who practices or he that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is Righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Then the Bible says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. 
And this is a, perhaps a confusing verse. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Father, this is a part of your word, and I need your help this morning with clear guidance and control of thy Holy Spirit to help us understand a most important passage of Scripture that directly revolves around everyone who is a Christian. Help us to be able to adequately explain. Help us to also be able to comprehend through the work of your Holy Spirit this passage of Scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I can sum up these six verses in two words for the Christian. Don't sin. Don't sin. In this passage, there's at least four keys to help us understand those two words. Don't sin. Let me give you these keys in our time together this morning. Key number one is simply this. Don't taste transgression. Don't taste transgression. And here's the problem. Wherever we look, here's the problem. Everywhere, transgression abounds. Transgression or sin abounds everywhere. Verse 4, it talks about that. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. This verse could be translated, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin, uh, it equals breaking the law. Breaking the law uh, is sin. Let's look at that word transgression. Here's, here's where we need, it's not a word that we use every day. So what is the Bible saying? Transgression is not just breaking man's laws, but transgression is breaking God's law. Transgression means acting as though there are no laws, being a law unto yourself, making up your own rules for life, disregarding those that, uh, laws that already exist. Transgression says, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care. What society says, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless. Sadly, there are some of us that that's our attitude. <laughs> we just dismissed the Bible. That book that sits in your lap or you're using on your iPad or iPhone, we dismissed that book. It's just a trite book that I look at on Sunday morning. May I just tell you, God's word should have a preeminence in our life. Transgression has many forms, and one extreme is the defiant, radical young person who rejects all restraint and, and convention and seeks total personal freedom at any cost. We have some of those. On the other extreme is the old person who, who, who warms himself and smugs self-righteousness of his own re respectability of, look what I have accomplished, both of those disregard God's law. Both attitudes are infected with what I call the virus of sin. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 12, Jesus said of those last days, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Look around. The world is full of people who transgress, break, disregard God's laws. What's the solution? Verse number five gave us the solution. The solution is simply this. Jesus is the only answer. And I say that in the year 2021, Jesus is still the only answer. There's nothing that could come out of Washington, D.C. that would supersede the importance of Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this by making several comments. Education will not overcome transgression. Today, information is king, and this has been rightly dubbed the information age. I recently read that the information amassed by humanity prior to 1845 could be described as a stack of papers one inch thick. The information gained from 1845 until 1945 would be a stack of papers three inches thick. The information we gained from 1945 to 1975 would be represented by in a stack of paper higher than the Washington Monument. However, from 1975 until the year 2000, the stack of papers would be double the size of the Washington, Mon Washington Monument. But all of the information... That's been, uh, that has been accumulated since 2000 would be the height of four Washington monuments. Folks, there's a lot 
of education and information going on. With the invention of the computer, it has radically changed the information age. Newsweek magazine said that our information doubles every three years. I say this morning, still with all of this information, man is more lawless and man is more full of transgression than ever before. You know what? We've devolved to the point that we're committing sins that hadn't even been thought of before 1845. We've reached a new low when it comes to sin and rebellion. May I also say this morning, psychology will not overcome transgression. For the last generation, man has thought that if people could simply understand the mind, if they learn why we do the things that we do, everything else will be straightened out. Now there are therapists on every corner, but may I just tell you, you can go to all the psychologists in the world, it'll never be better than Jesus Christ. Never. Legislation will not overcome transgression. Even as crime rates climb, uh, we hear cries for less guns, less police officers, and less prisons. However, as the, uh, in some places, uh, gun laws become more restrictive, and, and that maybe even there's more police cruising the streets, and the prisons are full and overflowing. May I just tell you, transgression still abounds. You can remove every police officer from the United States of America. You want to see what happens to crime? Watch what happens to crime. We will see the lawlessness um, exponentially explode in this country. Legislation will not overcome. Carlos Romulo, he was a former Philippine ambassador, he said this, We have harnessed the atom, but we will never make war obsolete until we find a force to bridle the passions of men. You know who can bridle the passions of men? Jesus Christ. He's the only one. John tells us the only way transgressors can be tamed is through Jesus. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. In him, there is no sin. He's the only person that's ever walked this earth without sin. John the Baptist, he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God. What is so significant about this Lamb of God? He takes away the sin of the world. I'm thankful for him this morning. This is a little lengthy section here. I believe it's in your notes, but I, I, it just bears us reading through this. And I don't normally read uh, such a long section, but please follow along. As one commentator, uh, he commented on this verse. This is not merely an empty claim. It has been the demonstration of over 2,000 years of human history again and again. In every generation, the hardest cases have responded to this amazing remedy. Homosexuals, alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, acid heads, murderers, thieves, everyone. Even more difficult cases have surrendered. The proud, the intellectuals, the bitter, the cynical, the angry young men, the jaded old people. And always there have been the despairing, the wounded in spirit, the hopeless, the pathetic, the pitiful, the lost, broken derelicts that float through life. Jesus touches every race, the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, the Russians, and the Eskimos. And no matter where or when man has lived, it is always the same stories, always the same deliverance, always the same results, the healing of lawlessness. The miracle occurs when men and women, boys and girls, come to know Jesus Christ and receive him into their lives. Then the sickness begins to heal. I say, hallelujah, isn't that true? Some of some of us in this very room, our lives were characterized by lawlessness and grotesque sin. And Jesus found us. And Jesus saved us. And Jesus changed us. And today we're not doing those sins anymore. The application is simply this. Believers are not to return to sin. When you've been saved, believers are not to return to sin. This passage teaches me not to love transgression more than I love Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with owning materialistic things, but there's something terribly wrong with loving sin. In verse number five, it reminds us, in him is no sin. May I just say, that should be our goal. The more I fall in love with Jesus Christ, the more I fall in love with him, there should be less sin in my life. Romans 6 and verse 19 says it this way, For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness and to holiness. I love being a Christian. I make no apologies for that. 
Could anyone say amen to that? That I love being a Christian. Maybe we could say it together. I love being a Christian. Can we say that together? I love being a Christian. I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. Do you know what glorious thing happened this week? For the third time, I met with a man, and I sat down with this man, and, 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 I, and it's my, my third time talking with him, I had the opportunity to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And you know what he did right there in my office? He bowed his head, and he asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins, to come into his life, and be different. I'm so thankful for that. I praise the name of Jesus. And he says, man, it feels like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. He got up, he had a smile on his face, we walked down the hallway, everybody I could see going down the hallway, guess what this man just did? I said, what did you just do? He said, I just became a Christian. I'm thankful that Jesus will change a life. And I'm thankful that the answer to our problems is the finished work of Jesus Christ. If we want to understand this passage of scripture, key number two is don't fail to fellowship. Don't fail to fellowship. Intimate fellowship with Jesus keeps us from sin. Throughout 1 John, we see the word abides, abideth, abide. And last week we mentioned to you that 21 times this word is used. Whosoever abideth in him means to uh, not just have a relationship, but to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. It refers to intimacy, to have a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. How does that happen? I read my Bible, I pray, and I hang out with those who do the same. How do I have intimate fellowship with Jesus? I read my Bible, I pray, and I hang out with those who do the same. John said, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Verse number 9 says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And back in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In chapter 2, in verse number 1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. I am so confused. And those four verses, what gives? It sure seems like John has contradicted himself. And if you're a student of the Word of God and you read chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, you say, John doesn't know what he's talking about. Is there a such thing as sinless perfection for the believer? It seems on one hand John says that, but on the other hand he says that can't be happening. So the answer and lots of study, and lots of brains, and lots of other men who understand this. The answer is in the language with which it is written. What language was the New Testament written? It was written in the Greek language. So therefore, we have to understand Greek more than we understand English to understand this. So, the answer is in the Greek tense. It is a present continuous tense. It does not mean that the one who abides cannot uh, commit sin. Rather, it means that no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. If you are close to Jesus, you do not keep on sinning. We could say it this way. So anyone who lives in Christ does not go on sinning. Anyone who goes on sinning has really never understood what Christ has done for them and may not know him personally. I think that clearly helps us understand what John was writing here. So the important key uh, to winning over sin is to abide in sweet fellowship with Jesus. Three weeks ago, we examined chapter 2, verse 28. Abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. Will you be ashamed when Jesus comes back? Are there issues of sin in your life that remain unconfessed? That when Jesus returns, you will be ashamed? Jesus said in John 15, verse 10, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide or have fellowship in my love. In other words, if you obey me, you abide in me. Abiding requires obedience by faith. In Joshua chapter 3, there's a story uh, that, we that, that, that we've read before, we've preached on before. Israel uh, comes to the Jordan River. Many of us, we've, we've been there at the Jordan River. It's a river. And, um, and, and God told the priest to do something. He said, I want you to step into the water while the river was running at flood stage. What a crazy, crazy command 
given to, by God to the priests in Israel. It's flood stage in Israel. I want you to cross the Jordan River. And priest, by the way, you get to go first. I want you to walk into the flooded river. Yet when they did, the Bible says something happened. The waters came down from above and stood and rose up upon a heap. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And the Bible says all of the nation of Israel followed on dry ground. Our God's an amazing God. When we take the step of faith, he's the one who has to worry about the results, not us. And when he tells us to do something, we do it. In the year 1999, the Lord instructed me to leave the business world and to go into ministry. In 1999, my salary was $127,500. I wonder what I'd be making today if I stayed in the trucking business. $127,500. But God said, I want you to leave that and I want you to go into ministry. It made no sense for our family to do that. Because I went to Oakwood Baptist Church and they offered me $20,500 to become an intern at the church with a family of five. It made no sense. And my wife, when I told her that this is what I felt the Lord would do for us, she was like, okay, if that's what you think we should do, we'll do it. Um, We stepped into the flooded river and God met our needs and I stand before you in 2021 and we're still here we haven't starved God has met our needs that step of faith stepping into the river even when I didn't have the answers and it made no sense and we left an affluent suburb in Atlanta Georgia we left in an amazing house in Atlanta Georgia and we went and we lived in a one bedroom with five family members for one year. Our children survived too. That doesn't mean there were some moments in the confines of five of us living in a one bedroom. But may I just tell you that what God orders, he also provides. And we must have that fellowship with him. And some of you, you are worrying about a decision that you need to make. And it looks like it's a flooded plain. And I can't do that myself. Step into the river if God's told you to do it. And let me tell you, he's going to meet the need. I'm a living example of that. And I want to encourage you. You must have that fellowship with him. Uh, For the last couple of years, I uh, tried to overcome in um, beginning in the end of 2018, um, my son said, Dad, you got to do something. You're getting fat, overweight. Your cheeks are like chipmunk cheeks. Look at this picture, Dad. And he would show me a picture. He still has a picture. He said, and he'll laugh at me. He said, look what you look like in 2018. And I had. I put on weight. And, and uh, for my frame, I, 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 I weighed 27 pounds more than I did. And my fr- for my particular body frame, that just didn't work. And, and so in 2018, I put on this weight. And I, here's my problem. I was overeating. I love chocolate ice cream at Dairy Queen. It's my favorite thing. It is a temptation. It is the, of the devil. Because I am tempted by chocolate ice cream at Dairy Queen. I love it. I love chocolate ice cream. And I had to make a decision after I went on my first ever bike ride with Jonathan. And I was huffing and I was puffing. And I said, I can't do this. And he said, Dad, you got to. You're getting fat. And I had to make a decision to stop overeating. By the way, as I've obeyed what the Lord convicted me of back in 2018, may I just tell you that he's replaced that with a great joy. And I can drive by Dairy Queen on 22nd and just wave at him every single day. You can do what the Lord orders you to do. And you can do what the Lord instructs you to do. We abide in Jesus by not allowing the enemy to have a foothold in our lives. In Ephesians 4 verse 27, it commands us, neither give place to the devil. Uh, I just want to encourage you. To step out by faith. Enjoy that fellowship. Understand that key number two is don't fail to fellowship. 
read your Bible, pray, hang out with those who do the same. And it will bring you closer to Jesus. But the absence of fellowship, here's what the Bible says, it's a sign of unbelief. Would all of you look here for a moment? There may be a blank in there and you're trying to write something, but look up here for a moment. May I just tell you this? If you're not willing to read your Bible, you're not willing to pray, you're not willing to hang out with those who do, you're demonstrating an absence of fellowship. And an absence of fellowship is a sign of unbelief. John says, whosoever sinneth, characteristically keeps on sinning, that's a continual pattern in your life, hath not seen him, neither known him. If that pattern continues and there's no conviction, there's nothing but the Holy Spirit to tell you that that is wrong, then you're not a believer. That should shake you to your core. The first key to having victory over sin is simply this, don't taste transgression. The second key to overcoming sin is don't fail to fellowship. Quickly, this morning, the third key to fellowship is don't sell out to Satan. Don't sell out to Satan. Well, I got this one, Pastor. That would never happen to me. I hate Satan. I don't even want anything to do with Satan. Oh, well, let's not be too quick on that. Let me explain what I mean. Don't let the devil deceive you, John wrote in verse number 7. And uh, uh, John has already warned us that there are those who, who, who would seduce us and draw us away. However, Satan is a liar. Satan is the father of lies. He, Satan is the master deceiver. John says, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. In other words, the one who does not keep on living a, a characteristically sinful lifestyle, but abides in Jesus, he's going to give evidence that he has a relationship with Jesus Christ. May I just tell you, Jesus is righteous, and if we spend time with him, we're going to be more righteous. We can't help it. Let me, here's how I'll illustrate it. Satan loves religion. What? Are you serious? Satan loves religion. Religion is one of his most deceptive tools. May I just tell you that there are Catholics in this congregation that that is your background and Jesus Christ saved you. And you would look back and you would say, Satan laughs. Satan rejoices whenever someone goes to a Catholic church. You say, oh, that's pretty harsh, Pastor Armstrong. May I just tell you, there are religions and cults that Satan is the father of lies. And is the master deceiver. And as a result, millions are going to hell. Because he's deceived them. Satan fools people into thinking that if they'll go to church and they'll receive baptism or they'll be sprinkled or they'll give some type of money or they'll wear the right clothes and maybe they just carry a Bible or they'll learn righteous terminology that they can therefore do whatever they want to do and they'll feel secure because they're religious. May I just remind you, Jesus, the number one group of people he had a problem with in the New Testament, who was it? The religious crowd. The religious people. The Pharisees had all the religion that you can imagine. They wore the right clothes. They memorized the law. I'd like for you to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Wouldn't you say someone who did that? They must be righteous. This was the, this group of people. They memorized the Old Testament. They prayed on the street corners, crossing their chest. Uh, and they gave their tithes publicly so that everyone could see it. And Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites. For ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward. But inwardly you're full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Jesus, however, is not interested in religion. He's interested in righteousness. Jesus is not interested in religion. He's interested in righteousness. He wants you to abide in him. That is his love and his goodness and his mercy. And that if you do that, it might flow through you. Satan is dead set against you showing love and goodness and mercy. Satan is like the rancher who put a, up a sign at his gate that said this. Stop. I know you're thinking about crossing this gate. What you should know is that if the coyotes, cactus, mesquite, heat, dust, or rattlers don't get you, I will. And that describes Satan. 
He throws up all kinds of roadblocks and warnings, but once you cross into his territory, he's got you, and he's going to allow you to be deceived. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. John says, he that committeth sin, in other words, continuously, characteristically lives in sin, is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. He was Lucifer, a beautiful angel who led a rebellion against God, and God cast him in a third of the host of heaven out with him. I'm just so thankful that I know the end of the devil. And One day, we who know Jesus Christ, we're going to witness the end of the devil. Uh, the Bible says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That defines the mission of the devil, to kill, to steal your joy, to steal your children, to rob you of a great marriage and to destroy all the different areas of your life. And one of the ways he does that is by allowing us to become so immersed in the things of this world that we think we're happy. And that happiness, we think, is joy. Happiness and joy are two completely different thoughts. Satan wants to, uh, Satan, he uh, does not want to steal your house. He does not want to steal your car or your money or your hobbies. Here's what Satan wants. He wants to steal your freedom and your joy in Christ. I'm thankful I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm unashamed of that. And Satan will not take that away from me. I've made that commitment. How about you? Martin Luther wrote this, the devil takes no holiday. He never rests. If beaten, he rises again. If he cannot enter in front, he steals in the rear. If he cannot enter at the rear, he breaks through the roof or enters by tunneling under the threshold. He labors until he is in. He uses great cunning and many a plan. When one miscarries, he has another and continues his attempts until he wins. Folks, look around. Are there any seats next to you? Around you, may I just tell you that in the history of our church, Satan has snatched a lot of people, destroyed them, tunneled through to, get, to make sure that he could steal their joy. In the last half of John 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. I have life through Jesus Christ. In verse number 8, John writes here, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested or made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came in the flesh. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. That we might have an abundant life. May I just say he came to destroy Satan's influence over you. When you're a sinner... Your job description is what? Sin. Can you participate this morning? When you are a sinner, your job description is sin. The devil already has the influence. He doesn't have to worry about the unsaved person. You do understand that the devil wants to destroy you as a believer. An upscale neighborhood experienced a garbage company strike during the Christmas season. Mounds of putrid garbage uh, stacked up along the alleyways and the curbs until the stench was unbearable. One, one man in the neighborhood, he had a bright idea. He wrapped his garbage in festive Christmas paper and he left it on the front porch overnight. Sure enough, guess what happened during the night? His garbage was stolen. I thought about that, and it fits perfectly right here because when I think of Satan, Satan, he loves to wrap sin in bright, attractive packages. But may I just tell you, sin still stinks. Sin still destroys. Don't sell out to sin. The first key to have victory over sin, don't taste transgression. The second key to overcome sin is don't fail to fellowship. The third key, don't sell out to Satan. And there's some of you, you're on the brink of selling out to Satan. Please come back. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. And finally this morning, the fourth key is this. Don't negate your new nature. Don't negate don't nullify your new nature. We're born with a selfish, sinful nature. Um, I, I, I just tell you that sometimes there's a battle going on. 
And John says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. This verse has been badly misinterpreted through the years to say that believers can reach a state of sinless perfection. But in the context, which is why we do expository preaching, we understand it to mean that a sinful lifestyle is no longer our nature. A sinful lifestyle is no longer our nature. Um, when we were saved, God gave us a new nature. And after we are saved, uh, the Spirit points to certain things in our life and says, Hey, listen, Brent, that must go. Don't try to downplay that. And uh, please understand that Jesus sometimes says, Hey, Brent, trust me. I've got this. I'll help you through this. As I conclude my message in Matthew chapter 14, it gives us the account of Jesus coming to the disciples in the boat. And it's one of those stories. Either you love your Bible, believe it, or you say, oh, that's one of those fairy tales. But you know what? The Bible says Jesus walked on water. So I believe it. The Bible says Jesus walked on water, but the evidence that Jesus was walking on the water is that Peter, that impetuous one, he sees Jesus walking on the water, and Peter says, I can do that too. And he's looking at Jesus, and he's waiting for the invitation, and Jesus says, come on, Peter. And Peter, you can see him, he grabs the side of the boat, he hops out, and he's starting to walk toward Jesus, and suddenly Peter realizes, what have I just done? And his faith evaporates. And the Bible tells us these words. He began to sink. I don't know how far he sank, but I know that the Bible says he began to sink. Can you imagine the terror that Peter had looking up at Jesus as he was saying, goodbye, Jesus. I'm going down. Jesus won't let you sink. He reached out his hands. Hey, Peter, come on up here. And I don't know what they did after that, if all the disciples went walking on the water and they had a party out there, or Peter says, hey, I'm going to walk to the shore. I don't know what happened, but here's what I know the point of the story is, is that Jesus has our best interests. And sin will always cause you to sink. What happened with Peter? His faith failed, and he began to sink. Sin stinks. Sin will cause you to sink. It weighs us down. And I wonder this morning, will you ask Jesus to help you to throw off that, that sin? That, and, and would you allow Jesus to, to help you be able to walk as a Christian and don't be locked up by Satan and be ineffectual as a Christian? You've been given four keys this morning to unlock that vice grip that Satan puts on you. So which key do you need to use this morning? What are the keys? Don't taste transgression. Don't fail to fellowship. Don't sell out to Satan. Don't negate or nullify your new nature. And with that, you can close your Bibles and your notes. I'd like to finish with an illustration. And then I'm finished. When, and, and please bear with me, uh, it's, it's an illustration I love dogs. I would love to have a dog. And one of these days, maybe we'll have a dog when our schedule will allow us. And we had dogs growing up. And, and uh, in fact, my first dog was a, 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 a full-bred collie. His name was Tiger. And, um, and uh, he was my buddy. In fact, my mom tried to spank me one time. And Tiger bit my mom. And um, I love Tiger. And any time after that, that mom came toward me, Tiger would stand between us and protect me from my mother. And it got so bad that they gave Tiger away. And Ty they gave Tiger away, and Tiger was taken eight miles away and given to another family. One week later, Tiger was back at our house. He found his way eight miles away. That was a great dog. We love dogs. So follow along my illustration. A dog, ha so so a dog has a nature, uh, um, and and, uh, and and you feed that dog. So um, let's say that that I have 
uh, uh, nature is an unsaved person, it's a dog. Okay? And if I feed that dog, uh, obviously it's going to grow and it's going to be healthy. And, um, and it wins. That, that nature wins because I'm always feeding and I'm always taking care of that nature. And then something happens and I meet Jesus Christ. I'm given a new nature. Bear with me. So I have two dogs now. And the Bible says that there's this war that goes on within me. It, it, it says that. And so there's a war that goes on within me. And so if you're a believer, you have two dogs living within you. Again, it's an illustration. It's not a, it's not a theological illustration. We have two dogs. Now, every one of you are feeding one of those dogs every day. Oh, I understand the illustration now. And so if you're feeding the old nature that was once beautiful and well-fed before you met Christ and having the greatest time living and doing whatever you wanted to do, if you continue to feed that old nature, then the new nature is marginalized, it's pushed to the side, and the war is not, not going so well. But if I feed that new nature, I love Jesus Christ, I'm in his word, I'm praying, I'm fellowshipping with those who do, then my old nature gets weak, and the new nature becomes more like Jesus Christ. Every one of you are feeding one of those natures, or one of those dogs. Who's winning? Who's winning? The one you feed is winning. And some of you are wondering why you're struggling in your Christian life. It's really evident you're feeding the wrong dog. Can we feed the right dog this morning? And that is, is that I fall back in love with Jesus Christ. I want to become more like him. I want to put my energies and efforts in making that dog look really good. And I want to make the other one sick and go away. I don't want to feed my sinful nature. Quit feeding the sinful nature. Feed the new nature. Which dog are you feeding this morning? 